Well, this morning on this Sunday after Christmas, I want to take a look at a a character that um, sometimes gets overlooked, and that's the person of Joseph. In fact, uh, I originally sent to Noel a focus for this morning and uh, was going to go one direction, then I changed and went back another direction. Noel wrote back to me, said, uh, I can't find any hymns about Joseph. (laughs) And I think that's kind of indicative of the fact that he kind of gets lost in the story here. And, but I think he's really a hidden hero in this, in this story. Even uh, when he's introduced through the lineage in Matthew chapter 1, the focus really isn't on Joseph, it's on Mary, because we read in the 16th verse, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called the Christ. So it's Mary that's what's important, really, uh, via uh, Joseph at this point. Uh, we know a little bit about Joseph in the sense that uh, he was from the line of David, We know it was for that reason that his family, Mary and Joseph, traveled uh, to Bethlehem where they were to be registered for the census. And beyond our text this morning, the only other thing that we have is the fact that he was mentioned indirectly at when Jesus was 12 years of age. You might recall that uh, Mary and Joseph's family uh, went uh, from their hometown, probably of Nazareth at that point, uh, down to Jerusalem. They would celebrate the Passover feast on a regular basis. And on this particular occasion when Jesus was age 12, uh, they began to go back home and noticed a day later that Jesus isn't with the entourage. And Mary and Joseph apparently thought that the cousins had picked him up and they were with the cousins, but they found out that nobody knew where he was, so they went back to Jerusalem found that uh, Jesus was holding forth in the synagogue with the rabbis, uh, dazzling them with his wisdom. And then when uh, the Mary and Joseph inquire about this, Jesus says, don't you know that I have to be in my father's house? And that's the last we really hear of Joseph at all. What happened to him? Somewhere between the ages of 12 and 30, apparently Joseph had died. And when Jesus gets into his public ministry, there is really no mention of him. So easy to lose him in the story. But I think there is a legacy that Joseph leaves us. It's the legacy of his commitment to obedience. He was an embodiment of obedience. He heard what God wanted him to do, and he did it. As simple as that. And that's the story we pick up in Matthew chapter 1. So let me invite us to turn to Matthew 1, verses 18 through 25, and then a couple of selections out of the second chapter that really zero right in on this character of Joseph and his quality of of obedience. And as is our custom, let's read uh, responsibly. I'll start with the even number of verses. You pick up the odd number uh, down through verse 25, and we'll probably reverse the order here once we get into the second chapter. This is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child through the Holy Spirit. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin, whoops, that's your part. 
Oh, I really threw you off there, didn't I? Do you want to read that verse again? Well, let's try that one again. Okay. I understood that one. Okay. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. And then in the first uh, 12 verses of Matthew chapter 2, we read the story of the visit of the Magi and then Herod's desire to kill the Christ child. And so we pick up the story at verse 13. When they had gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. And then the, the ensuing uh, st- statement here is that, that Herod has now died. It's now safe for Jesus to return. So we pick up at verse 19. After Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. So he got up, took the child, and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. Obedience always comes in, the, in a context, doesn't it? In the context of a challenge. I don't think there would be any oh, virtue in obedience if the choices were not difficult. So Joseph finds himself here in a predicament, doesn't he? A predicament that creates the context for his difficult choice. So let's take a a look at the setting here and let the scripture describe the conundrum that uh, Joseph faces. Verses 18 and 19 of the first chapter we read, this is how the birth of Jesus Christ came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Because Jesus, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Now, to understand what's going on here, you have to sort of sort out the marriage customs of the day. If you were listening carefully, there should have been sort of some dissonance to your ears about words that you heard, because it says here that uh, Mary was pledged to Joseph. Sounds like engagement to us, a period of time leading up to, to a marriage, but it also says that uh, Mary... Joseph was the husband of Mary, and that uh, in order to break the relationship, he would have to divorce her. So what's going on here? Well, there were really three stages when it comes to the marriage relationship back in uh, Joseph and Mary's day. The first stage is what we would call engagement, but it was not arranged by the couple itself. You know, in our day, you date with each other, you fall in love, and then you get engaged. But the first step back in those days was an arranged marriage, probably between parents or a matchmaker that would arrange the the marriage even as the two were children growing up. They probably wouldn't even know each other up until the time of the actual formal betrothal. Because it was believed in the Middle Eastern setting that uh, marriage was too important to be left to the dictates of passion. Read hormones. 
and the fluctuating emotions of the human heart. It needed to be arranged. And so that was what happened first. And then the second step would have been betrothal or the pledge. Now, this was a one-year waiting period leading up to the formal ceremony of marriage, and that's where we are in the story here. But there were no sexual relations allowed during this one-year waiting period. In fact, the woman who was betrothed was known as a betrothed virgin, and if her husband happened to die during this one-year waiting period, she would be known as a virgin who was a widow. The only way to break this pledge at this stage would have been for a divorce to take place. And then at the end of the one-year waiting period, you would have the marriage ceremony. Now, this was a big deal in those days. It wasn't just a matter of a couple getting married and going off to a honeymoon. They had a week-long celebration. All restrictions around fasting were set aside by the rabbis because this was a time of feasting and joy and should come together. Now, we don't know that Mary and Joseph ever had an opportunity even have this time because, we, as we saw in our text, they were on the move uh, quite a bit early on in their relationship. But before Mary and Joseph got to the marriage stage, of course, Joseph received some unwelcome news, did he not? He receives information, probably through Mary herself, that uh, his betrothed is pregnant during this year when sexual relationships were forbidden. So here's the challenge for Joseph. What is he going to do? How will he respond to this news that has come into his life? As I see it, uh, he had approximately three options given to him. The first option would have been to just save his own skin. He could have done what any red-blooded, healthy, sinful man would have done, and that is point finger of blame at Mary's life at her, at her, in her direction. I mean, what conclusion can you draw? If Mary was pregnant and Joseph knew he had not been involved in that process, then she must have been the one that was unfaithful. Mary had stepped out on him, and everyone else must know it. When Joseph's immediate thought be that uh, he must preserve his own reputation by making sure that everybody in the village knew that Mary was the one at fault. Holding Mary up to public shame would shift the guilt away from him onto her. After all, he was the victim in the situation here, and everybody should know that. I mean, I think that would have been sort of the normal response to that news. This is the option I think the majority of people would take. One of the manifestations of the human heart is that we tend to paint ourselves in the best possible light and others in the worst. We, we minimize our own faults while maximizing the faults of others. Somebody does something wrong and we get righteously indignant about that, especially when we are the hurt party. But if we do something wrong, well, we have our reasons, have our excuses for that. Let me put this in the context of a marriage relationship. If I were to interview married couples this morning apart from each other and ask you the question, which of you carries the greater household load in your home? How do you think that would be answered? Well, I do, of course. In fact, interviews that have been done by psychologists said that each partner says that they carry 75% of the load in their home. I mean, I've been out shoveling snow all morning. Look how much I do around here. And what do you do, by the way? <laughs> 
And so if we start keeping score, we can always look at ourselves in the best possible light and look at our partner as they're not quite carrying their weight. On a much more significant moral scale, Robert Lifton in his book, The Nazi Doctors, attempt to answer the question, how do you justify behavior where ordinary people commit demonic acts? He concluded that the way the Nazi doctors, who presided over the extermination of millions, dealt with their guilt was to see themselves as decent people trapped in an impossible situation. It wasn't their fault, it was the circumstances that made them do what they did, but otherwise, we were rather decent folks. See how that works? See our self-justification that takes place? Joseph could have behaved exactly like the first actors did in the Garden of Eden. After eating that forbidden fruit, God chases them down, and uh, the Lord asks Adam, what's going on here? What was Adam's response? The woman you gave me. In five words, he blamed God and the woman. The woman you gave me. It's your fault and that woman's fault for what's happened. And then the Lord turns to the woman and says what? She says what? The serpent. Blame placing. That's just the automatic response of our hearts as sinful people. Joseph could have gone there. We see that he was a man of integrity, so he didn't go there, but I wonder if there wasn't a period of time where he considered that as his option. The option he chose, that we're told about, was to follow the law, but to temper it with compassion. That's option number two. Scripture says that Joseph was a righteous man. That's no casual designation. There's a reason why uh, Matthew chooses that particular phrase. A righteous man was considered a sadiq. That's a Hebrew word for somebody who has committed themselves to fastidiously keeping every aspect of the Torah. Joseph was a sadiq. He committed himself to the Shema, Hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He kept the food laws. He showed up at the synagogue. He made sure he observed the high holy days. It was a part of his character to be a righteous man. Now, to be as righteous as apparently the text says he is here actually put Joseph in quite a dilemma. What should he do? Mary has stepped out on him, and she's become a common woman. And how should he treat her? I mean, he knew the law. On the one hand, she may have intentionally stepped out on him, gotten involved in a relationship where she was seduced, and if that was the case then the law required that both of them be stoned to death. She may have been impregnated because she was raped. If that's the case, then the person who was the perpetrator of that crime should be brought forth. If no one came forth and admitted that they were wrong, then Mary was supposed to drink the waters of bitterness. And what are the waters of bitterness? Well, you drink that water, and if you die because if you drank that water, it showed that you were guilty. And if you lived, it showed that you were innocent. So here Joseph finds himself, a sadiq, who's willing to do anything to follow the Torah. A woman that he loves is now pregnant. She claims that her pregnancy is from God. If Joseph marries her, he loses his reputation as a righteous man. And he probably even asks himself, 
could Mary be right about her explanation of what happened? And then he says, nah, (laughs) can't be right. And so Joseph decides to do what I call split the difference. He decides to follow the Torah. He's going to divorce Mary, but he's not going to put her up to public shame. He's going to do this quietly before two witnesses, which is what was required. And he would then probably bring some shame upon himself. And that he was willing to do that. So we see the integrity of Joseph as he's contemplating this particular option in the decision. But as he's considering this, we know that the Lord presented a third option to him. So we read in verses 20 and 21 of Matthew 1. But after he considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. And she will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. So an angel speaks into his dream and tells him that the life inside of Mary came through no human origin. The seed that was planted there would give give birth to the one who would be the Savior of the world. It's as if the Lord is saying, instead of defending your reputation by putting Mary away, I'm going to ask you to risk your reputation and bear the shame of this union. Now, when Joseph decides to go ahead and marry an obviously pregnant wife, can you imagine the conversation that uh, he might have had with his father, Jacob? I tried to imagine that conversation, so here's the conversation that I wrote. Joseph. Joseph, what's going on here? Why aren't you divorcing this woman? She has obviously been unfaithful to you. Don't you have any honor? How dare you bring this shame upon our family? Preserve your dignity. Be done with this woman. You're still young and eligible. There are other fish in the sea. Dad, let me explain. I was intending to do the very thing you are demanding, but in the midst of a dream, an angel appeared to me. Trust me on this one. He informed me, well, let me put it this way. The child in Mary's womb is not mine, nor another man's. This is God's child. I was told the name of Jesus, you know, like Joshua, meaning God is salvation. Joseph, that is the lamest explanation I have ever heard. What do you take me for? Do you think I just fell off a turnip truck? I realized that explaining how sex works didn't come easy for me as a parent. But to invent this cockamamie story to cover up your shame, blame God. Well, you can see the cultural pressure that was on Joseph. But in spite of his personal doubts that had to be there, Joseph was a man of obedience. And I think this is his distinguishing characteristic. This is Joseph's legacy. The pattern that emerges in Joseph's response that we'll see in the text is to hear from God, and then do as he is told. And so we read in verse 24, when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home to be his wife. So for the remainder of the message, I want to draw just two key conclusions about what obedience is all about through the life of Joseph. First of all, obedience is acting on what God has said to do and then to do it. 
And I think this is the clear message that Matthew intends to convey to us. Two other times, an angel of the Lord appears to Joseph in his dreams, and it gives very clearly the kind of response that Joseph gives. In Matthew 2, we've already read that uh, after Herod was attempting to kill the children and kill the Christ, this is what the angel said to Joseph. Get up, take the child and his mother, and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for, and to kill, to, for, the, for the child and to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night, and left for Egypt, where he stayed until the death of Herod. And then in the ensuing period, Herod dies, the danger back in Israel is taken away, and so the angel again appears to Joseph in a dream. After Herod had died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, get up, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who are trying to take the child's life are dead. So he got up and took the child and his mother and went to the land. So he got up and took the child. He responded and did what the angel of the Lord told him to do. So obedience is simply this. God speaks, Joseph acts. Simple as that. You might remember a a bizarre story that occurred several years ago. Uh, Larry Walters, a 33-year-old man, decided he wanted to see his neighborhood from a new perspective. So he decided to tie several helium-filled weather balloons to his backyard lawn chair. He packed a six-pack of beer, PB&J, and a BB gun to shoot down the balloons when he lofted up to a particular high level. And he thought, well, maybe he'll get 100 feet off the ground with these weather helium balloons. Well, in fact, he got a lot higher than that to the point where Los Angeles International Airport had to shut down the runways for two hours because of this flying object up in the sky. And once he returned to Earth on his lawn chair, he was asked three questions. First one was, were you scared? Yes, he said. Would you do it again? No, he said. Why did you do it? Because you just can't sit there, he said. You just can't sit there. That could have been Joseph's motto, I think. God speaks, you do. Obedience is really that simple. It's interesting the language of obedience in the New Testament and the Old Testament. In the New Testament, the Greek word for obedience is hupo akuo, hyper listening. That's an interesting word, isn't it? Hyper listening. There is no Old Testament Hebrew language for uh, hearing and doing. Hearing and doing are one and the same. You hear and you do. The Hebrews could not imagine hearing from God and not, not doing what he said to do. So Jesus said, if you keep my commandments, uh, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. One of the key elements in the great commission of Jesus is that the apostles are to teach them to obey all that I have commanded you. We are to follow all that Jesus had commanded us. Dallas Willard has said that that great commission has become the great omission, <laughs> that we are not doing or being taught to do all that he commanded us to do. In other words, I think we should simply be Nike Christians. What's the Nike slogan? Just do it, right? Don't sit there, act, just do it. Now sometimes it's not at all clear what we are to do. We are presented with situations that are complex, 
Joseph, before he heard from the angel, didn't quite know what to do. He muddled through and was doing the best that he could. But other times it is very clear what we are to do and we are to just do it. For example, when it comes to giving, is the scripture clear about the guidelines for giving? It is, isn't it? We are to give 10% as a starting point to the Lord's work. It's very easy to take our income, multiply by 0.1, and we get the number, and we can start from there. Well, either Christians are mathematically challenged, or we're simply disobedient, because a high percentage of us know what it is that we're supposed to do, and we do not do it. Just do it. It's what the Scripture says. If we claim to love God, then spend some time each day in His presence. If we claim to love God, make sure that our children have prime time in our schedules. If we claim to love God, intertwine our lives regularly with other believers. If we claim to love God, have a heart for the poor. There are some things that are very clear. Just do it is Joseph's motto. The second thing I think we see in Joseph is that obedience requires faith and trust. The Lord is asking Joseph to do something that goes against the grain. He has put his reputation on the line to do what God tells him to do. He must risk his status as a Sadiq. So it takes faith, stepping into the unknown, to be obedient before God. Bishop Canon Green told of his proposal of marriage to the woman who became his wife. He asked her, will you marry me? She responded, well, I don't know. I'm not sure that I love you. That wasn't the response he was hoping for. But undaunted, he pressed on. He said to her, well, do you trust me? She replied, oh, yes, absolutely, implicitly. Good, he said. That's all we need. Let's get married. (laughs) Trust, commitment, obedience, all are fit together. I'm sure many of us have sung the hymn over the years that we love, trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus than to trust and obey. We are to be happy in Jesus. And to be happy in him, we trust and obey. He who loses his life for my sake shall find it, Jesus says. You turn to the 11th chapter of the book of Hebrews, where you have the Faith Hall of Fame listed there. And in that book, we read, By faith the men of old received of divine approval. Without faith it was impossible to please God, Because anyone who comes to him must believe he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. And the story that you read in that chapter is person after person is called to go from where they are to a place where they know not where, like Abraham. And they set off in this adventure, only listening and responding and hearing from God and moving a step at a time. And I think this was true of Joseph, wasn't it? The angel of the Lord said, Leave Israel, go to Egypt. Was there a holiday in on the way? Could he call ahead for reservations? He didn't know where he was going, where he would end up, and yet he went. That's the adventure of faith. That's the adventure of stepping out in obedience. The angel of the Lord spoke to him again. Go back to Israel. Time is, is right. Way is clear. Reestablish your life. In Nazareth. And so he followed those steps. Some of you maybe here this morning, 
and you sense you are being called to step into an unknown future. And you need the assurance that God will be with you in that unknown future. My guess is there are people here ready to make a decision about something, trying to contemplate what to do about a relationship. And you need to know that God will be with you in it. Faith is entrusting your future to the God who has his eye upon you. Brandon Manning tells the story of a two-story house that had caught fire. The family was inside of the house. They quickly gathered each other up and started out the door when the little boy broke away from his mother's arms and ran back upstairs as the rest of the family made it out the door. Before you knew it, the boy was standing in the second floor window crying out to his father. His father said to his son, son, jump, jump, I'll I'll catch you. And the boy cried back, but daddy, I I can't see you. I know, cried the father, I know, but I can see you. Jump. Faith is kind of like that. May feel like a big leap into the dark to say, yes, okay, I will tithe. That's something I need to do. I need to entrust my resources to the Lord's work. I don't know how that's going to work out, but I know what I'm supposed to do. Some of you maybe are at a point where you're saying, I need to spend more time with my family and less time at my job. I don't know what the consequences of that's going to be, but I know I need to do that to be faithful to my home commitments. God sees jump I I see you the Lord says Joseph was the earthly father of a son who came to do the will of his father like father like son Joseph was from the beginning one who simply said thy will be done he was a righteous man a sadiq on my way here this morning I thought of an incident that, was, that took place in my life that might be the best closing story here. I'm removing what I had written to replace it with something else. For 24 years, I had pastored mainly churches in California, and for the last nine of those 24 years, I was pastoring a church in the Silicon Valley, and we were at our ninth year, and things were going quite well. It was a fruitful time, a, a happy time in the life of the church. Sometimes it takes a while to get to that point, doesn't it, Dan? <laughs> And uh, so I was going in sabbatical in the summer of 1997. I had been teaching a summer course at Fuller Theological Seminary in the Doctor of Ministry program for a number of years, and I got a call from one of the professors who said, would you consider putting your name in to be a candidate for directing the Doctor of Ministry program? It was one of those times when I hung up the phone and I said, hmm, this feels different. I'm supposed to pay attention to this. <laughs> But as I said, it was a very fruitful time in the life of the church, a time when relationship was going well, there, there was you know, burgeoning life occurring. And throughout that summer and into the fall, I would pursue that, the potential call to Fuller Seminary and yet be pulled back. Oh, I want to stay right here and you know, appreciate all the fruit that is taking place. As I entered into the fall, I was sincerely torn as to what to do. There would be some days where I said, I'm just going to stay here and enjoy the benefits of this ministry. Things are going well. Why should I want to leave now? And then another few days, I would sense this strong pull and draw that I'm supposed to take this call to leave my pastorate and go direct this program at an educational institution. 
One morning in the midst of this tug of war going on inside of my heart, and there was definitely a battle taking place, I went early to my office. I pulled out my desk chair. I knelt down on the floor, leaned up against the chair, and I was just crying out to God, Lord, show me what I am supposed to do. Either way, I'd be happy. So be happy to stay here. Be happy to respond to your call. Either one, I just need to know the direction I am supposed to go. Well, I got up from that prayer time that morning, and I had no more clarity than when I sat down (laughs) to pray as to what I was supposed to do. And then it was as if the Lord said to me, do you see what you just did? Do you see where your heart is? You really do want to know what my will is. And when that thought dawned on me, there was a peace that came over my life in that moment. Not that I knew what I was supposed to do, but it was so reassuring to say, gosh, I really do want to know and do your will and your will alone. And I think that's Joseph's message to us. And the question he puts to us, do we want that? Is that what we want? Do our hearts desire simply to hear what God wants for us and then to do it? That is his purpose. As we come to a closing prayer this morning, I want to give you the opportunity to maybe present before God a particular situation where you are seeking his wisdom and direction and asking the Lord to show you what he would desire you to do and then the willingness to do it. Let's bow together in prayer. Our God, Each one of us brings our own circumstances here this morning, our own situations. You know what they are. For some, it may be somebody, some who are of us who are just wrestling with a relationship. We need to know from you what to do in that relationship. Maybe there's some conflict that needs to be resolved or next step that needs to be taken to deepen the relationship. And we just need to know from you what it is that we are to be about. Some of us may be in a situation related to work, uh, either trying to find it or trying to sort through what we're to do in our work situation. Maybe it has a greater claim on our life than it should, and we need to redistribute our priorities. Some of us may be looking at some darkness within our own spirit, and you wanting us to deal with an issue that is an internal place where it's hard for us to go and even look at because it's getting in the way of our relationship with you. Show us, Lord, that we can look at our own darkness and hear from you what to do about it. So, Lord, we offer up our lives to you as we conclude this year and as we get ready to enter into next. Uh, May our heart's desire be to live under the pleasure of your goodwill in our lives. Through Christ we pray. Amen.